You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, this is Jerry Conway, and you're listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Hello, this is the Epic Marvel Podcast. This is Amazing Spider-Man, episode 19B, covering a period of The Amazing Spider-Man in 1989. I am your host, Curtis Findlay. I am your modern Spider-Man co-host, Adam Chapman. Adam, which issues are we covering today? So today we are talking about The Amazing Spider-Man Annual number 23, the Marvel graphic novel Amazing Spider-Man Parallel Lives. And we're also talking about uh, Amazing Spider-Man 320 to 325. Yeah, and so this comes out of the epic collection called Assassination. And so the stuff that we are talking about is the actual six-part story, the Assassination Plot. Why do you think they dropped the plot off of the epic collection title? That's a great question. I really don't know. Is it just (laughs) catchier just saying Assassination because it's a play on Assassination? It's already rough enough to say, <laughs> like, yeah, like it's it's already like a bit of a tongue twister when you say it. And you're so adding plot doesn't make a huge difference, but yeah, it's just interesting because like that's the name of the storyline. So I always was very curious why they like when I refer to this epic in my mind, I add plot to it because it feels like it should be there. It does feel like that. I and I have no idea why they made the change. I do like the title though. I think Assassination is a very clever title because we're talking about. Um, Silver Sable's hometown, and she herself is a mercenary for hire. She is an assassin, and so she. This is her nation. This is an assassin nation. I think it's pretty cool. <laughs> you do love wordplay. Yes, I do. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> oh wow. Okay, so it's been a while since we recorded. I know that I just released the last episode recently, but we recorded that months ago, and uh, and then we took a. I took a break for the summertime, and now we're just getting back and recording this episode now. So I like had to refresh my memory about what are even the subplots. There's like subplots about Nathan and his gambling problems mm-hmm. and um, and May has borders and uh, and you know, living in her house, Peter and MJ got kicked out of their apartment and they're looking for a place to live. I think they're living in Flash's gym right now. Is that right? Uh, that part I don't even remember. I think so. Or, or did they just move into Harry's apartment? Oh, I think that they got the they got the offer. Um, they actually do it yet? <laughs> I honestly can't remember where we're at. This is this is so sad. Um, it's funny because you mentioned like the last episode. Yeah, so it has been a long time. And when you when we were trying to record like set up this recording, I was like, when was that? And then you put up the episode. And I'm like, all right, well at least I can listen to it. So <laughs> I always <laughs> listen to to all the podcast every podcast I listen to on double speed because I listen to so many. Yeah. So I'm just so used to hearing everything sped up. I got to admit, it's the I think it's the only way I can listen to myself talk because there's something about my voice sped up it now sounds like a slightly different person oh yeah and i don't feel as uncomfortable about listening to myself as someone right. yes who's done like you know a thousand episodes of podcasts you'd think i would be over that but um i just never really liked the sound of my voice but when it's sped <laughs> up i don't mind it as much at the end of the last episode you were talking about how uh your podcast was going to hit a thousand episodes 
in August, and you weren't sure if you were going to start it or stop it at that point. But uh, that time has passed now. So since people are now listening to this episode, you want to give people an update about where you're at? Yeah, so it did end. Uh, we hit a thousand episodes. And actually, it was funny, when I was recording a thousand, the one thing I really wanted was I started the show uh, 10 years ago with my wife, and we did one episode together. And uh, she didn't really do many episodes, but we did that one. So I always did want to have her on the last episode. And I did a lot of like you were on the last episode, yep. a lot of friends of the show made appearances. It was like a bloated four or five hour long affair, which is true of most of my centennial episodes. They were always about that long. Um, and I even did a little segment with my son, which was actually kind of sad because he was like, you know, basically saying like he didn't want me to end the podcast. I was like, I was kind of surprised by that. And Aww. he was like, well, it was cool that like my dad has a podcast and now yeah. he doesn't. I'm like, oh, um, and I guess my wife and him were kind of making fun of me that I never ran it by them that I was going to end it. Like I just kind of decided on my own. So they <laughs> yeah. were kind of annoyed by it. But my wife was supposed to do a segment on the last episode and she had a lot going on at that time. She's like, I, I just don't have time. I promise I'll do a bonus episode with you. I'm like, absolutely. I'm really excited. It hasn't happened yet. Um, <laughs> my last episode went up August the 12th. I'm still waiting. So there will be at some point one kind of final coda episode with my wife. Um, I do think about it a lot about if I want to come back. It's usually when I read something really good and I wish I could talk to the creator about it. I don't have an avenue to do that anymore. Um, so that's the time when I most feel it. Or, or like I went on vacation to Disney World and usually I'd be worried about getting episodes ready to post while I was gone. And I didn't do that. Um, I'm, I, uh, I happen to have an off day tomorrow. And usually when I have off days during the week, I would schedule, you know, some podcast guests were hard to get in evenings, but they were available in midday. So I'd be like, oh, I'm off that day. And I'd be scheduling all these interviews for days when I was off in the middle of the week. So none of that either. So those types of things are very weird um, when you've been so used to doing something for 10 years and suddenly not doing it. I am enjoying the break, but I do miss it. Um, I have to sit down and work on doing other things with the podcast and with the archives, et cetera. But I just haven't had a chance to really focus on doing that. You'd think that not, you know, not having this, uh, this thing to do, I would have free time. Somehow I don't. I mean, two kids will do that too. They just, yep. they're like, they're like air and balloons. They just take up you know all the room in there and it keeps expanding. So it's, it's, it feels like I never have the extra time. But at some point, you know, the, there will be a Comic Shenanigans bonus episode. There will be other content from Comic Shenanigans at some point. Um, some at some point, some of the interviews might make their way onto YouTube in some way. I don't know if that's actually going to help at all with reach, but you never know. Some people like that kind of thing. So we'll see. But for the, mo for the most part, I get to be on your show periodically. I get to be on the Cave of Solitude podcast periodically. And that so far is, is scratching that podcasting itch. Nice. Well, that's good. I'm happy to have you on uh, here talking about Spider-Man, that's for sure, because I have a lot of fun with these conversations. Absolutely. I do have to apologize. You asked me what could have been a one-minute question, and I strung it out for like five minutes, so I do apologize. <laughs> I feel like that is the podcaster in you. Uh, yes, it is. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> Okay, well, uh, without further ado, let's continue on with the actual issues that we're going to be talking about today. We're, we're going to talk about the annual first, Atlanta's Attacks. This is annual number 23, but, but it's chapter four of the Atlantis Attacks story. <laughs> what are your thoughts on Atlantis Attacks? Yeah, you know, Atlantis Attacks is a funny one because I remember seeing it for a long time. I think on like some of the trading cards in the 90s, um, they had like the cover, this specific cover was on it. So I always remembered this cover. Um, you know, some of the books that I read kind of mentioned it. And then when I first started buying omnibuses, I think one of the first ones I ever bought uh, was Atlantis Attacks. So I'm like, oh man, I'm finally going to have it all in one spot. Uh, it was back when I thought, you know, the only omnibuses I would get would be the big events because that, that's what they seem to be doing. And there's something really special about being have, you know, everything in one spot. 
And then I read it. It was it was very lackluster, um, <laughs> and I was not not that excited. It was it was you know it was one of those ones I own. Where it's kind of like Evolutionary War, where it's like cool to have it, but like not a great reread. Yeah. And Atlantis Attacks is definitely one of those, and it's because it some of them feel like they have part of the you know the stronger narrative, and some are a lot looser, and they don't really tie into anything, but they don't have to because they're like they're annuals, right? So like they're not really they don't ever really feel a piece of what's going on in that character's continuity. They're just kind of this weird adventure that's part of this crossover. And that definitely feels like this. And this is such a weird, like, first of all, the cover really misleads you because you're like, oh man, this is a great looking cover. It's, I believe, Mark Bagley. Like, no, it's I, John I Byrne. If this is John Byrne. Sorry, not Bagley. Of yeah. course, I should have I should have been able to tell by uh, She-Hulk's hair. But uh, yeah, like you, you look at this, you're like, I want to read this. This looks great. And then you get into the interiors and you got like early Liefeld. And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> what is this? Early like, Liefeld. It, yeah, that's right. And it's it's very early Liefeld. Honestly, uh, some of this stuff is, I like it better when he, because he's not as stylized as he gets a little bit later. Mm. But they're like, he can only draw the, a lot of these characters from the straight on view. So if you just flip from page to page, like almost every character has a straight on face, like looking straight at the camera. And even when their body is a little twisted, it's like straight on. And uh, I just think he needed a little bit more work on his skill. But then I guess that's what everybody says about <laughs> Liefeld in general. I guess so. You know, I, I've really, it's interesting. Over the years, I have come around a little bit on Liefeld, not because I'm like an apologist and I don't love his artwork, but I do, what I think I do respect about him, first of all, is that you can tell he loves comics all the time. Yes. And and he's never not loved comics. And that that seems like such an obvious thing, but a lot of people don't always feel that way. And you can just tell that he's a fan and who's just so lucky to be able to work in the medium. So that's, I've always respected about him and appreciated about him. One thing that I have started to notice more by listening to his podcast here and there um, is is looking at his work. And yeah, sometimes the pencil work is kind of all over the place, but I do start to respect the fact that if you just look at how he's laying out a page, there is a lot of action and he's trying to really get out the most he can from the layouts themselves. Now, how he maybe articulates and some of the details uh, may that sometimes leaves a lot to be desired. But I think if you actually just kind of look at that, there's the strict breakdowns, what he's really doing here, how he's laying out pages and how he's kind of trying to drive the story. There's a lot of action and excitement there. And so I've come to really appreciate him as, you know, someone who can really you know, lay out a page or lay out an action sequence really well. Again, some of the finer details of his art do sometimes leave a lot to be desired. But there is something about the energy and excitement that he does bring to certain panel layouts that I think often goes unnoticed because people are too fixated on the fact that, yes, the detail, finer details are lacking. So I will agree with that, actually. I think that he and Todd McFarlane and Eric Larson, it's that whole image crew, really do define the the visual language of Marvel Comics in the 90s, and maybe comics in general in the 90s. Mm. Yeah, the different camera angles, the way they use their panels, the thick borders, like the off-kilter ones, inset panels, all of that kind of stuff. He does do a good job of that. I do. I will agree that uh, his layouts are just fine. It's the subtleties of the artwork that that are that people have problems with. I think, mm -hmm. like even in like, I mean, sorry, I, I know we can do. You're gonna do a kind of a broad synopsis of the issue in a second, but like even on I guess page two sixteen. I mean, it's interesting because the, the first thing you notice is like, well, that's a ridiculous Mary Jane. Like, that's not right. Huh. Her hair is like it's. I mean, it's very eighties, so it's up to time. 
where it just feels so like, what is going on? But then when you really look at it, there's just, there's a dynamism to it um, in, in these couple of pages. Like even She-Hulk storming out, like you really feel that that character is storming out. Like there is definitely a sense of, of motion of anger of movement. And so again, I'm trying to, like, I don't want to hate on everything, right? And so I think there is stuff to see here and say, like, he's really nailing some of, like, the, the louder moments in quieter moments, if that makes any sense. Like, these are just talking heads, people walking around offices, and yet there is, a, you know, a dynamic feel to it, although, you know, which doesn't need to be there, but he's adding that heightened um, sentiment. Does that make sense? It does make sense. The problem I have, though, is when you have a page like 216, Mm-hmm. and it, it had, the layout's fine, it reads well. Like the thing about comics is when, thi- when things are going well, you don't notice them and you're not supposed to notice them because they're going well, it's doing its job, otherwise it takes you out of the story. And then you mm-hmm. get to this, this middle panel where Mary Jane is looking over her shoulder and it looks like her head is twisted way further than it actually should in real human anatomy. <laughs> And that just brings me out of it. It's like, mm. whoa, I, I shouldn't be noticing that her head is twisted way further than, than it should be. True. Yeah. So, you know, it's things like that. Okay. The other thing that's hard to swallow in this chapter is just the plot in general. <laughs> <laughs> because <laughs> this is chapter four of a story, a larger story that's told in other annuals. So if you're just reading this epic collection, you don't know what's going on when you start in, in the middle of this story right here. No, not at all. It's written by Jerry Conway and David Michelini and drawn by Rob Liefeld with inks by uh, Tim Dizon. Uh, and also um, a, a few other people for the last few pages, because I guess they needed to hurry up with their deadlines. Yeah. So we get thrown into the middle of the story. And what you don't know ahead of time is that Tyrannus, the one of the rulers of the underworld, is actually in the body of Abomination. He looks like Abomination right now. Mm-hmm. And so Lyra, who is one of the Lemurians, which is the other city that sunk when Atlantis sunk, Lyra and the other Lemurians, they're merging Abomination and Emil Blonsky, who was the original Abomination, who's human, merging them back together again to separate Abomination from Tyrannus. So that's kind of what's going on here. And then, of course, Blonsky turns into Abomination and goes on a rampage and She-Hulk and Spidey are there to kind of stop him. That's mm-hmm. kind of it. There's not much more to it. There's no there's no beginning because the beginning's in, an, in one issue and there's no real end. The only thing of significance that happens in this issue, I guess other than Tyrannus coming out of Abomination's body, is that She-Hulk gets tagged to be a bride of Set, which is going to be very important later on in the story, several chapters. Much later. Yeah, (laughs) way later. Yeah, it really is just an excuse to, you know, have Spider-Man and and She-Hulk fight against a a classic kind of Hulk villain. Again, the fact that Blonsky is just a mindless beast here, we don't even really get any real characterization for him. He doesn't have any real desires. He's literally just, you know, rampaging beast, go, fight. Yeah, it's not super complicated from a plot perspective. It's just kind of a a story. (laughs) It's, you know... I guess, like, when I really think about it, like, what does this serve in terms of the longer narrative? Really, all it does is separate Tyrannus from Abomination, which happens in a couple pages. Then it's done. Like, the actual crossover itself is is done a couple pages in, and then we just have this perfunctory team up with Spider-Man and She-Hulk, which... Again, some of the art is, uh, some of the layouts, I should say, are kind of fun and exciting to kind of see them fight. But the actual details um, leave tremendous amounts to be desired. But this is, you know, how old was was Rob Liefeld here? Like 19 years old, 18 years old? Like, he is just a kid, so you can't expect too much. But 
I mean, it makes sense that you would have them start out on an annual where annuals were where a lot of people got to kind of cut their teeth. So it makes sense that you kind of give them a book that you know, isn't a, a main monthly, but uh, yeah, it, it's definitely very, very rough. And I, I just think that also, if you're a 10 year old, this is probably just right up your alley. You don't care about the actual like ongoing plot of the Atlantis story. But man, you get to see a big fight between these two, the, these big monsters mm -hmm. and, and She-Hulk and Spider-Man. Like that's that's the price of admission right there. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it, it does deliver that. And again, we have to remember, that's what they were aiming for, right? They're still aiming, like, they're not aiming at this point. They don't realize that, you know, they're only going to be selling the 40-year-old collectors. <laughs> they're still <laughs> yeah. thinking like, they're still kids. You know, there's still kids reading this. So, you know, it has to be fun for kids. Yeah, I mean, it's such a contrast, though, because you think about that, and then we're going to get a very convoluted plot coming up in the assassination plot storyline. And then we have a very touching and down to earth graphic novel that's definitely more for an older crowd, I think. So the fact that we start our conversation with a very immature story, it doesn't track with kind of the rest of it that's coming out. No, I guess not. And if you're reading this whole book from start to finish uh, with the, the goblin story earlier and was it Hobgoblin making a deal with the devil and everything like that, it's like mm. this this story right in the middle of the book definitely feels out of place. No, that's true. Well, and so it, it's interesting just um, to move on in the annual yep. that the next backup story is fine. But when you also have it with Parallel Lives at the same time, you're like, wow, I'm getting a lot of retread of the Spider-Man origin here. <laughs> yeah, we sure are. Definitely. Like, and I guess, I mean, obviously, you know, was Parallel Lives, I mean, obviously they kind of do the mapping the way they will, but did it actually come out in 89? I guess it must have, right? They're putting oh, in yeah. the 89 book. Yep. Um, I don't know when in 89. It's just such a weird choice, especially like Jerry Conway writes the annual and doesn't, I mean, doesn't he write the, the main book too? <laughs> Well, he's, yeah, he's definitely on Spectacular at this time, right? Spectacular and Web. And, and he writes Parallel Lives, which is interesting that he would write two rehashes of Spider-Man's origin in the same year. You know, like, what, did no one think to say, well, hold on, we're doing this over here. Maybe we shouldn't do it again. Like, it just feels like an odd, and I guess an annual is often a place where they would kind of do that kind of stuff. Um, and again, you have like an early Mark Bagley stuff. So again, kind of a, you know, trying out a bunch of different artists, kind of see what, you know, what, how they work. But it just feels weird. And especially as him as the writer, wouldn't he know that he's about to do this, this other thing? Like, I don't know yep. which month they're coming out, but like, it just seems so bizarre that you'd have the same writer doing, you know, refresh on the Spider-Man origin in the same year. I think there's two things to think about when we're talking about this, though, is one of them is that they had no idea that these would be collected like this in the future. True. So there's there's probably very few people who are reading them so close back to back like this. Um, the other thing is that the graphic novel Parallel Lives is a Mary Jane story, and this one is not. So they serve a different purpose. It's not just retreading an origin story, although that is a main theme. They they're they are very different stories. True. No, yep. you're not wrong. But I mean, it's just hard to hard to not notice a lot of the similarities that we're getting a lot of you know reminders of the the. You're right. The the framing sequences are different, obviously, and the perspective you take on it is different. But you're still getting the origin again. Yeah. Uh, so Fantastic Four falls into this trap a lot because they retread the origin story all the time, especially in the early Kirby <laughs> years and stuff like that, just because they didn't have collections. So if you want people to know what the origin is, you're going to have to tell that story over and over again. God, doesn't that just sound exhausting? <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's why we get stories like this one. It's called My Science Project. And uh, it's a retread of the story. But because we 
have heard the story, we need to take a new perspective of it. So this one has Peter Parker. He's writing a, his science project for school, and he's writing about himself, though not calling himself out as as, as Spider-Man or something, somebody with superpowers. But he is trying to come to grips with his powers but in the best way that he knows, which is through scientific study. And so we get Mark Begley drawing this whole story. This is one of his earliest Spider-Man projects, I think, if not the earliest Spider-Man project of his. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it shows. He's definitely trying to mimic Steve Ditko in this, like really heavily, mm -hmm. not just because he's trying to copy the patterns, but everything in his like his style of shading and his composition of the new panels and everything, definitely trying to be Steve Ditko. Uh, and it's taking away from the Mark Bagley-ishness of the artwork, which is very mm -hmm. evident because we get another story by Mark Bagley in the same annual, and it's like total Mark Bagley, very yeah. different style. But anyway, so this one is trying to come to grips with his powers. So it does tell the whole origin story. It swipes directly from Amazing Fantasy number 15 almost all the way through. And I like that at the very end, he kind of switches the narration saying, you know what, screw the, the science project. I just need to talk about this and mm -hmm. talk about what I'm feeling and not be so cold and, and, and logical about it because this is an illogical thing that is happening right now. So yeah. I like that at the end, a nice, nice little reverse role reversal. Can I ask a ridiculous question about yep. page 248? Obviously, you know, it, it's, it's one of those iconic things and it's interesting when they do retreads when they don't have it. Do you, when you have the shot of Spider-Man holding the burglar, do you wish that the dots were there on in the eyes? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, why aren't they there? I don't know. I never thought about that until right now. Because it's one of those it's one of those weird things, right? Like it's like the only place that's ever happened is in that story, and, but it's so iconic. Um, so it's just interesting when they have like you know a retread on it, but they don't actually show the the dots because sometimes right. they go out of their way to still do it and honor that original moment, and sometimes they clean it up to be more on model. So it's always curious to see which tactic they'll take. Yeah. <laughs> And obviously, the editors don't care. Otherwise, well, I mean, like, they do care. I mean, <laughs> no, I think, but they, I think they do care, and some care that they think it should be on model and keep it the way that Spider-Man looks now. Oh, right. and others say we should respect the fidelity. So I think it actually does matter to the editors. I it just see. depends which editor you get. <laughs> okay, moving on, we have one page that says Spider-Man's uncanny spider sense, which is just a I don't know, or it's a three pages actually, just showing off his powers. I don't think there's anything of real note here. No, it's I, just you know what th th this is the. The back filler that they always got in annuals, which um, you know is part of why some people feel like the annuals don't really matter because it's it's just got a lot of fluff like this. But if you got to think, you know, if you have a kid who spends a little bit more money and they got this big issue and it has this cool stuff and it you know it has the origin and it tells you all about their powers and you oh, know, yeah. this fun little demonstration, like there is value to that. Um, I think as older readers, we kind of think of it as just as being fluff. But I think if you had been you know six seven years old reading this on the stands, this would have been you know a nice extra you know bang for your buck and get to see more Spider. I absolutely loved them as a kid. And I remember the there's an anniversary issue of Fantastic Four. It's the Tom DeFalco run and there's a die cut cover on the, with their logo on it. And they had a double page spread for each of the four main characters that explain their powers and stuff. And that was my introduction to Fantastic Four. It's how I learned about what mm -hmm. they can do and what their power sets are and everything. And I thought they're so they serve a purpose for sure. These days you just oh, look sure. up on Wikipedia what their powers are and learn about it that way. 
It, well, sadly, yes. I mean, it's so interesting, right? Because like we had to, we just scrounge for details. Yeah. Uh, kids today, they can do anything they want on, the, <laughs> yeah. on that phone of theirs. That's right. We're all at their fingertips. Uh, okay. So next is an Aunt May story called Standards and Behavior and uh, written also by Jerry Conway with art by Richard Rockwell. Are you familiar with him? No, I'm not. Are you? No, I've never heard of him before. Nope. Does, does this sound like a fake name though? <laughs> Richard Rockwell. Yeah, maybe the alliteration. <laughs> Uh, so what's this guy's name? Jeffrey Katzenberg. Is there Nick oh, Katzenberg? No, Nick, Nick Katzenberg. Who's Jeffrey? Jeffrey Katzenberg's like the um, DreamWorks guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Nick Katzenberg is visiting Aunt May's house and taking pictures. I would like tell him to put his camera away. I would not want a stranger just in my house taking pictures of everything. That would be very, very strange. Yeah. No, I mean, and he was, you know, one of this new wave of kind of more supporting characters that Spider-Man would be able to interact with. Yeah. Um, but, you know, not one of the, the fun ones, like, or at least not one of the, <laughs> the one. No, sorry, that's not fair. What I mean is like not one of the chummy ones, like one of the more antagonists. Like, yeah. He didn't. He didn't have a lot of those at the time, so that he was. They were trying to kind of populate, um, uh, you know, the bugle with more characters that would be kind of rubbing up against Spider-Man in not a positive way. And I, you know, Katzenberg definitely did that. So Katzenberg is a creation of Jerry Conway and is featured very prominently in Spectacular Spider-Man and Web of Spider-Man because those are the books at the time that dealt with Peter's work life, his photography, and the Daily Bugle. We don't see that come out in Amazing Spider-Man during this era at all. So to see Katzenberg in this title, it's kind of out of place just because we don't get any context of who he is or why he's there. But if you were reading Spectacular and Web at the time, you would know. Yeah, you know, I I actually did like it, though. I think I think it was an effective use of Katzenberg. And it was it's just interesting to see an interplay with Aunt May. Um, it was interesting to kind of see a story where Spider-Man, again, was kind of barely there and no narration from him. And it was all about, you know, kind of Aunt May's own adventure. And I think I, I personally did enjoy it. I thought it was fun. Yeah. OK, the next story is a, a Fred Hembeck Spider-Man's top 30 villain countdown. And I definitely want to talk about this because I I want to know what you think about like the top 10 of this of this list here. Oh, yeah, that was interesting. So, uh, oh, yeah, what an interesting group. I mean, it's a snapshot of the time for sure. Yes, yeah, oh, for sure. So JJJ is number 10 and the burglar is number nine. Venom is number eight. Scorpion is number seven. Vulture That's is right. number six. Doctor Doom is number five. Kingpin number four. Uh, Craven is number three, Dr. Octopus is number two, and then number one is a tie between Green Goblin and Hobgoblin. All right. So I first of all, Doc Doom should not be on any list like this. No, not uh, at all. But I did think it was interesting that he's number five, because didn't he appear in Amazing Spider-Man number five or is Fantastic Four number five? Well, his first appearance is Fantastic Four number five, but was he okay. in Spider-Man two? I don't remember. Uh, I I can't remember right off the top of my head, but I mean, so that was the one thing. But yeah, he, he shouldn't be there. I mean, at least the other ones are all Spider-Man villains, but like what Doc Doom doing here? <laughs> if you get lower down in the list, it's definitely a list that reflects this era like we have Silvermane and Sin Eater the Tarantula Mm -hmm. the Fly uh, the Human Fly Carry On all of these characters are the ones that are featured pretty prominently in this era. It is fascinating to see Venom as low as he was yeah. uh, in this list. But remember, he's only come out two times before this annual came out. He's only had two appearances. Yeah, that's true. So that's already crazy. Um, Doc Ock being as high as he is makes sense. Uh, Craven feels like only because Craven's last hunt was big. Right. Like, I don't think anyone would ever put him high otherwise. Kingpin only feels weird because especially by now, at this point in, in you know, in Marvel time, he really was usurped by Daredevil. So 
having him even show up as a Spider-Man villain feels odd. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously he is, but I wouldn't put him in the top ten. Um, it's it's an interesting eclectic list, but I I I, I am okay with the goblins being tied. Um, I think of the time again, that's what you were kind of getting to before. It feels very of the moment because you know a few years go by and hobgoblin would get knocked down way on the list because the original one, you know, that original excitement had really died down. The character was gone. You had this also ran who was running around and every time he showed up, it was worse and worse, or at least the character was getting less and less respect as a, as a real top tier villain. It was becoming a bit more of a joke. Um, so he really wouldn't be up at the top. Green Goblin being at the top, it's always him and Doc Ock, right? Those are That's always the kind of the, the forever question. And for a long time, the only reason, you know, Goblin got to stay at the top is because he killed Gwen because he wasn't actively doing anything. Right. Now that he's obviously been alive for, gosh, almost 30 years, he's been back, which is crazy. <laughs> yeah, you know, right. Like the amount of time he was gone in the first place was what, like 23 years? And it, he's been back longer than that now, which is crazy. Wow. So, you know, I nowadays, I mean, again, it's always Doc Ock and, and, uh, and Green Goblin. Craven does not really belong in the top five. But again, proximity to Craven's last hunt has got to be why he's at this high. And if you were making a list today, I think Green Goblin would still be at the top. But then you'd like Venom would be right up there. Carnage would be right up there. Yeah. Um, Dr. Octopus would stay up there. Uh, would, and- would, would you put more Lun in the top top 10? Yes, I think so. Especially if this list were made in like 2003 or something like that. <laughs> oh, for sure. It's yeah, because I mean, he he falls into the trope of most villains where sometimes their first appearance is the best appearance. Yeah. In terms of showing, like Doomsday is definitely that. Like every time he showed up afterwards, I was going to be watered down. Same to you know, maybe not the same effect, but same it can be true said true of uh, of Bane and it's like other characters like that where they come in, they do great, and then every other time they show up, it's not quite as exciting. But yeah, no, for sure, it'd be very different. I think Morlun is interesting because I think he's probably the only character in the last 20 years. Well, he's slightly older than that now. I guess he's 22 years old. But, you know, he's the quote unquote newest character to probably, you know, crack that top five or 10. Yeah, I guess Mr. Negative doesn't crack that top top 10. <laughs> um, he'd be in the top 20. He's been around. He's been in me- different media. Like he's been in video games. You know, like he's he's been around enough that, you know, he gets more. He should get more respect than maybe we would think to give him. And if you've been a fan who got into Spider-Man in the last 10, 15 years, he's probably pretty big for you. Probably. But I still think I don't think that he would beat out the classic Ditko villains. Probably not. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> Just as an addendum to what I said before, uh, Doctor Doom did show up in Amazing Spider-Man number five as well. Ah, okay, right. Yeah, I think that was the joke was that Doctor Doom shows up in the number five issues uh, all the time. Yeah, he has to be at least in the top ten. Okay, the next story is another Fred Hembick, just a few pages of uh, Spider-Man versus J. Jonah Jameson. They're talking about their history together. Uh, again, I don't think there's anything of real note in these three pages. They just kind of go through J. Jonah Jameson's history and why he's such a jerk. You know, it's <laughs> funny because I'm reading it and I'm like, man, I want a Fred Hembeck sequel to this because think about how much stuff that's happened with J. Jonah since then. No kidding, right? Yeah, I mean, they only get to the part where his son turns into a werewolf. <laughs> a lot has happened yeah. since then. Well, they get a little bit past that too, right? Because they do have the spot where he has the pictures of the clone, right? So... But yeah, right. basically it's around, what, issue 175 or so. So there's a lot more they could do with this. Yeah, becoming mayor and uh, all oh, of that. God, yeah. yeah, I actually forgot about that for a second. <laughs> He's done so much. <laughs> He's done so much. 
Okay, last, I know we're spending a lot of time on this annual. There are too many little stories to talk about here. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about chapter four of the saga of the serpent crown, because again, this is kind of just one of those history stories that gets split up over the annuals. Not much to say here. One of the few times that Peter Sanderson actually writes like an like a, an actual story that isn't an entry in, you know, in, in a reference book or something like that. Like he doesn't yep. get a lot of times to actually kind of, you know, write an actual story. I mean, it's still really just an info dump and, and giving you a history, but um, it's not often he gets to do one of those. So it is notable for that. I do like Peter Sanderson. I have a lot of his kind of reference books and I've talked to him in the past. So he is someone I enjoy reading and it's interesting to see him actually get to, you know, kind of write a story, although it's again, more of a, a long form story uh, narrative. I do wish, and I can't remember in the omnibus if they put all these chapters together or not, but it does make me want to kind of read it all together because it is a big, concise history. And that's a big thing that you know Sanderson was Marvel's historian alongside you know Grunwald so it, I mean you know reading something like this it's at least going to be a comprehensive history whether it's going to be the most scintillating read that's not really even his fault because he's just really stitching together history in a way that's going to make sense and that was what's really cool about this and he also did a story through the annual story uh the subterranean wars where he mm -hmm. kind of uh he reconciled the fact that there are a whole ton of different races living under the earth and how did they all get there and to, into this story here. Because Eternals, when it first came out in the 70s, Jack Kirby's Eternals, it wasn't supposed to, like his Kirby's vision was that it was not connected to the Marvel Universe at all. And That's so right. they have the destruction of Atlantis in that story that sort of contradicts what Namor's origin is mm. uh, because the Eternals are sort of responsible for the destruction of Atlantis or the, uh, the deviants are at least. And so uh, Sanderson takes that concept and makes it work in Marvel universe here. So that's kind of what I, I like about this one. For sure. It's difficult to do that kind of stuff. And the people who can kind of take disparate parts of, of Marvel continuity that at times conflicts with itself and being able to kind of iron it out in a way that makes sense is a skill. Yep. And I love that kind of stuff because I like seeing how pieces fit together. So like when uh, Mark Way did his official history of the Marvel Universe a few years ago, mm -hmm. like that was like catnip for me. That was just like, <laughs> it, it might as well just said, Adam, buy this right now. Don't worry about it. It's great. Totally. Um, because it was a book for, for me. And so, yeah, this this type of story is definitely down my alley. And, and someone like Sanderson was perfectly suited for it because he had a mind for that stuff. Like he loved how the pieces fit together. I mean, one of his, his jobs when he worked at DC was like to read their entire back catalog and like categorize and, and classify all the continuity if you can imagine dc back in the day was kind of a mess pre-85 and he was and he knew all that stuff so i mean if you're going to get anyone to kind of catalog and understand and put things together to be a coherent narrative he's a pretty good bet to do it definitely yep okay well let's leave that annual behind us now and move on to amazing spider-man number 320 this is part one of six of the assassination plot and I just want to make a note that this is when Spider-Man was going bi-weekly during the summertime to tell longer stories because the the general consensus at this point where you could make a story that's maybe like two or three issues, but don't make a story that's longer than that because then it just takes way too long. You know, you're eating up half of the year with one story. But if you go bi-weekly, you can do a six-part story in three months and that's okay. 
So that's kind of what we're doing here. Do you kind of miss, I mean, it, it's so interesting, right? Because nowadays, you know, a six part story is pretty standard. And so you have to follow it over six months. Kind of miss that, you know, old school ethos of, well, that's too long to keep the story going. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I do agree uh, that uh, we could, well, I mean, yes and no. If your story is good enough to be told in six issues, then by all means, use six issues. I don't have a well, problem with that too. at all. Okay, Adam, why don't you take us through this first part? Well, before I actually talk about it, I just I wanted to say something kind of general about doing these kind of stunts where they do end up going biweekly. Um, this is obviously not the first time we, we see it. I have to give credit to McFarlane for he does a fair number of them. I think he only has, what, one of them off um, where he doesn't do the art on, or maybe maybe two. But the fact is, like, to be able to crank out enough content this quickly to accommodate when the book's schedule suddenly, you know, gets a lot faster is pretty admirable. I mean, he, you know, it's tough to do. And some of his artwork here is extremely detailed, a lot of lines. Um, that's kind of an image guys thing. Like they always use a lot of line work. Um, and the fact that he could do that this concisely and this quickly. And a lot, a lot of times I think doing his own inks yeah. um, is to his credit because that's not easy to do at this quickest schedule. And yes, at some of these issues have larger splash pages or they're simpler and there's not as much kind of panel work. So it makes it a lot, maybe easier to do it a little bit faster, but at the end of the day, like, you know, he's able to cram in a lot in a relatively short period and that could not have been easy to do. Probably not. Either he was working ahead quite a bit during the monthly era, and then when it got to, to bi-weekly, he was able to keep up that same pace. Uh, but yeah, you're right. At the By the end of this series, he's being inked by somebody else, and I think Eric Larson does one of the fill-in issues, and maybe even a few pages of another one. But let's uh, we'll see you that uh, when we get to that part of the story. Um, but it's interesting when you do see these bi-weekly stories. Like, I mean, this is one of them. Round Robin, which comes later in the in the chronology, comes up as well. It's interesting that these books um, feature a lot of other characters kind of jumping in and kind of taking the focus off Spider-Man. Um, you know, and you definitely see that in this storyline because you have a lot of Paladin, a lot of like Silver Sable, and they give all these other characters kind of jumping into the narrative. And it feels like it draws a lot of the focus out of Spider-Man. And it seems to happen a lot in these bi-weekly stunts. So I'm curious, like, what, why that seems to be the case or, you know, what was going on that, they kind of feel like it can't just be Spider-Man. It has to be all these other things, but they start to detract the focus. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I actually think that it's probably, well, it's definitely a marketing thing uh, because, you know, you put but, Captain but America. Paladin? Well, <laughs> maybe not Paladin, but yeah, I don't remember. Paladin, I think maybe they were trying to do something bigger with his character. He just never kind of really hit it. But uh, if you think about this, if they're going bi-weekly during the summertime, this is when kids are out of school. And they're out, this is the 1980s, so they're not all staying inside and playing video games all the time. They're out riding their bikes and going to 7-Eleven or whatever. So to have the comics turn over on a much regular, a more regular basis on the, on the stands, the newsstands, mm -hmm. is probably a good thing. Because then, like throughout the summertime, if you have six different issues of Spider-Man in their faces instead of just three, you're going to potentially sell more. You put Captain mm -hmm. America on that and, you know, it's, it's great. The chances of them seeing a comic book during the summertime are way greater than during the school year when they are more occupied. Uh, that's just my thought. A Paladin, I don't know why he's on the front of the first one, except for the fact that I think maybe they just wanted to kind of push his character. Um, but they, I mean, the, later on, we're going to get uh, Silver Sable on the co front cover and she was pretty big at the time. Um, or gaining gaining traction. Yeah, and, no, absolutely. And Captain America, and then our special mystery villain uh, at the very end. 
from, from a plotting perspective, like this first issue is interesting because it does start nice and small. Like it starts with very like, you know, Peter's, you know, you know, Peter's at school and he's, he's with Dr. Swan and then he kind of takes off to do Spider-Man things and he ends up, you know, finding this, this caterer is being knocked over and by the paladin is like, what's going on here? And then there's, you know, armed, armed guys. And so him and paladin have to escape and he's trying to figure out what paladin was doing with these caterers finds this, you know, information about where the caterers were going to be. So he, you know, tries to figure out a way to, to go to this party using MJ's hookups, which seems very convenient. And he ends up at this party, uh, you know, he ends up fighting against, the, you know, trying to figure out, again, what Paladin is really up to, uh, with all, find all these tanks and all this other, like it escalates quickly. But I do like that it starts small, feels very regular Spider-Man-ish things to do, where, you know, a series of, uh, you know, accidents happen that bring him into a larger narrative. So in that way, I think it is very classic Spider-Man. The artwork is, I think, what sets it apart because it does feel, again, of this very uh, new, more risque style of artwork. It's much more angular. It's much more, you know, there's a, a certain danger to it. Spider-Man just looks more dangerous than he looked in the kind of old school days. A, a big part of that, obviously, is McFarlane's use of anatomy, of, you know, how he exaggerates Spider-Man um, when he does his action. So there's just something more kinetic about it. It feels much more visceral. And so at times, it's a little bit more edgy. And I, I like it. I had a lot of fun reading these issues. I credit... Uh, Todd McFarlane for a lot of that because I think that he is just like you said very dynamic and he like we were talking about with with uh, Rob Liefeld earlier in this episode he has a certain way with his panel arrangements and his layouts that really get you excited when there's a lot of action going on and there is a lot of action in this book like you say it started off small but we have you know gunfire almost right off the bat and and it carries through almost this entire issue what i like about this one is that there's obviously a mystery and there's obviously something bigger going on but we have no idea and we're actually not going to find out what that mystery is for a few issues uh, we find that's out right. that paladin is working with silver sable and that there's something that's going to happen to her country that she's investigating but we don't know what it is. We don't know who the target is. We don't really know anything about it except Silver Sable's like, I, I'm trying to stop this thing. Exactly. It, it's great. I think it draws you in. And I, uh, and alongside the artwork, I think it's a really good issue. Uh, a little bit of the panel work I wanted to make mention of in particular, just because it's an interesting touch that didn't need to be there, but let's add an extra element, is uh, on page 272, um, there's a brief conversation between MJ and, and uh, Harry Osborne. Yep. And I like that just on those two panels, you have the, 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 the old phone cords. Yeah, uh, going around there particularly like it's an interesting detail like i can't imagine that was in the script at all like i think that just was something that todd did on his own he probably was just like doodling like who knows right oh, but sure. it just feels like such an interesting touch that i liked and it added a little bit you know a little bit extra and again didn't need to be there at all um but it was just like an extra detail that i definitely enjoyed to see because it did add again like it's it, it could be boring right to just have these panels next to each other but i thought by breaking it up with the phone wire you could tell that they were talking on the phone and without thinking that they're in the same room. You know, I don't know why. It just, it, it worked for me. Another page that I want to point out is uh, page 281. There's a mm -hmm. layout of Spider-Man chasing a car. And Spider-Man oh, yeah. is in these small inset panels. And the car is in these larger panels in the background, like uh, underneath the small Spider-Man ones. Spider-Man is swinging to the right. And then the car drives to the left. Then Spider-Man swings to the right. Then the car drives to the left. Then Spider-Man's face, he's swinging to the right again. And then the very last panel at the bottom there, the car is facing to the left. So you, your eye gets bounced back and forth like, uh, like a ping pong table. 
Mm-hmm. It's great. I really like it. Yeah. No, yeah. There's a lot of nice, like little visual tricks that McFarlane is trying out here. And I think they do work fairly well. And again, we also get, you know, on page 285, we do get, you know, some classic uh, McFarlane webbing, which is always nice uh, to see. I, I do think the only uh, issue I had with some of the dynamism here in this issue is that Paladin always feels awkwardly. Um, portrayed like even on page 285 they're running right but he looks awkward spider-man looks like he's moving he's got his sense of motion paladin looks awkward uh the first time we actually see paladin actually uh when he's kind of taking a shot or about to take the shot of spider-man on 274 he looks awkward too like I, i i don't know if maybe he just didn't know how to draw paladin in a way that showed movement because every time paladin is doing something he looks awkward everyone else looks great but something about paladin at least in this issue i I don't know if he really had nailed how the character was supposed to move i wonder if there is some action movie character that this is supposed to be based off of because Mm. he kind of reminds me of like i don't know you're an arnold schwarzenegger type bodyguard character okay and schwarzenegger is a very stiff actor anyway right he and the the poses in here kind of remind me of that. It's like he's always just kind of standing straight, trying to look intimidating or something like that. And so when you try to get him to look like that, but then actually also do something like reach for something or whatever, then it does look a little awkward. It, it is it is right. I didn't notice that until you pointed it out, but he is kind of just kind of just standing there all the time. I don't think we can get to let the issue go by without at least mentioning that, you know, this continues the odd objectification of, uh, of Mary Jane. You know, like a lot of her working out for no real reason. It doesn't really add anything to the story, but it's just, you know, Tom O'Farlane getting to portray a very sexy woman. And it's just, it's weird too, because in this book, you know, you also get Parallel Lies, which is very classic, you know, on model MJ, which is much more, I, I don't want to say wholesome, but just very, you know, less overly sexy. And then this is, you know, I, I feel like they start writing MJ differently once she starts looking like this. Because if you read like the DeFalco stuff, which was only a couple of years before, she felt very different as a character. And, you know, friends portrayed her as, you know, like someone who could walk a runway, but not someone who was like, you know, this crazy supermodel or with a, you know, necessarily showing her with a body like this. So it's just very interesting to see how the character starts to change as the way in which she's illustrated changes. It's true. Yeah, it's very much I've married a supermodel kind of a, an attitude right here. Because friends will tell you, like, his idea was she's a runway model. Runway models have a different look. And this is this is not runway model. This is something else. <laughs> is it soap opera? Because that's kind of what she's into right now, is the soap that's opera. That's true. And, like, the, like, her, like, her body doesn't obey the laws of physics anymore. Right. Well, that's just comics in the 90s. Yeah, but, but it wasn't for supporting characters. Like, Lois Lane always feels like Lois Lane, generally speaking, isn't drawn to be like Wonder Woman. You know what I mean? Like, she's still a real person. And I feel like MJ started to feel less like a real person. Yeah, I guess I could see that. Maybe it's the influence of just the supermodel, yeah, yeah, the supermodel of the of the '90s that kind of grew through the '80s and such. That yeah, that I mean, whole, like the whole thing was really growing at the time. Oh, for sure. I mean, if you think about it, like remember, you know, around this time, Baywatch was starting to be big. You know, like which showed different types, <laughs> a specific type of body type that became like you know the the popular kind of pop culture body type for a while, right? Yeah, it's not normal, um, but that's you know it became in the zeitgeist. So I'm not surprised that they started going this way. And obviously, when you think of women 
women in the 90s in comics, they look a very particular way. And MJ is starting to look like what they'll look like. Yeah, that's true. Because it, it, if you look at like 80s comics and like Rogue was always a, like she didn't look like what we're used to Rogue. Like when we think of Rogue now, we think of like, you know, Jim Lee's version, which is a very sexy version that was used in the X-Men animated series. That's what a lot of people's version of Rogue is. But go back to the 80s, Rogue was never like that. She was she looked very different. Yeah, well, and she was a child, and she was she was covered up the entire way because that was her powers and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and she didn't have confidence, and that was reflected in the way that she was drawn as well. That's true. It's interesting because you talk a lot about that, but Silver Sable is kind of the same way, like dressed provocatively and has a lot of confidence and stuff, but we don't see her the same objectified the same way that Mary Jane is being objectified. No, not not, not quite. Although even her, like her body type was always supposed to be very slim. Like everything, like, you know, with, with they, there's shots of her cleavature where I'm like, that's not, that's not the Ron Friend Silver Sable. Yeah, that's true. Because she was, she was like a, you know, she was like a, like a Olympic athlete, like a very much more, you know, she just, that the, the, that's not the type of curves that that character had. She was much more like a, a nimble. She was, you know, she was this like high level athlete. And then the version we get here does not really look like the traditional Silver Sable model up until this point. I will say what we're used to Silver Sable being now is more like the Top of Farland version or the cover to do 321, for example, probably feels a little bit more like the Silver Sable we're used to seeing now. But it's definitely not what the character was when she was first created. Right. That's just uh, an evolution of the time, I guess, as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. There's a there's not much in the way of B plots in this six issue series because Spider Man spends so much time not at home, uh, but we do find out that Aunt, Aunt May has only six months to live. Overheard right. in a phone conversation, Peter <laughs> overhears, or no, he gets a phone message. Yeah, that says that uh, Aunt May just has six months, and kind of a weird thing for a doctor to call and leave a message. <laughs> on your phone about but well it's not even about her right like that's, that's well that's peter doesn't know that. there. i guess that's not why yet. they're calling yeah maybe that's what it is but and actually speaking of subplots we do have the um the moment that uh, they're gonna help uh harry move soon he's moving to his loft on saturday right he's asking if mj and Pete can help so that's got brief conversation does help advance that aspect of the plot right Okay, moving on to issue number 321. This one is called Under War. Not Underwear, Under War. <laughs> uh, okay, Paladin and Silver Sable and Spider-Man infiltrate the Life Foundation. This is a, a company that they were investigating in the previous issue uh, because mm -hmm. they have discovered that one of the guys working in the Life Foundation, Chikane, uh, will be housing an assassin that is being sent to kill the king of Simkaria during the Silver Jubilee celebration. So they have to figure out all of that kind of stuff. So this is where we get a little bit more of the plot. I learned so much about Simcaria in this issue because <laughs> I really don't know anything about it. But apparently it's a sovereign nation with a king and the king is important enough that they're going to throw an assassin at. I don't think anyone wanted to assassinate Queen Elizabeth because that would not really serve any real purpose, except I guess they would probably start a war. But mm. But this one has some sort of actual real importance. So so that's what they're going to find out. So, I mean, it's a pretty simple plot, but Spider-Man has to make some big decisions here because, first of all, is he going to leave home to go to Simcaria, which is in Europe, mm -hmm. when he knows Aunt May is uh, only has six months to live, which actually he finds out in this issue. The phone call was actually about Nathan, Aunt May's yeah. boyfriend at the time. Uh, he's the one who's actually sick. So... Is he going to take off when his family needs him? And the other thing is that Silver Sable offers him money, which Peter desperately needs right now, which is a very Spider-Man thing. 
Uh, mm -hmm. But it's to be a mercenary. It's to go and kill the assassin that's going to kill the king. Can he be a part of that? And he eventually decides that he can be a part of it. So he does go for the money. Yeah, it's an interesting, you know, it feels like it gets really resolved really quickly. But, you know, it's Spider-Man, so he's not going to truly be a mercenary. But right. it is an interesting kind of position to put him in. And it's, I guess, kind of played for laughs, right? Because, like, I don't like you. I don't like your morals. I don't like, I'll pay $1,000 a day. Uh, okay, well, I guess I could go, you know. But that only, we only know that, like, this is a hard decision because the, the previous several issues, they kicked out of their house and they don't have, you know, mm -hmm. they really do need the extra money more than ever right now. Um, and yes, that scene is played up for last to give it some levity, but I think that it still shows that Peter, you know, Peter... What am I trying to say here? I think he's willing He's willing to make some compromises because mm. he doesn't actually know, he doesn't fully know what the situation is going to be when he gets there. And I think he'll just play it by ear. True. You, you said it yourself. It's Spider-Man. We know it's Spider-Man, so we know he's not going to actually go through with anything. So maybe he has that in the back of his mind. From a subplot perspective, we do have, you know, then they help Harry Osborn move. And Harry Osborn does offer the, you know, for them to take the top loft, which does have a nice fun moment where, you know, Peter's looking around. And he's like, hey, there's a skylight in the bathroom. Fabulous. And they're like, Peter, you're weird. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Because who would care about that? Right. But he's like, you know, thinking about all the Spider-Man possibilities. And on that same page, there's a nice, uh, an interesting choice, but I do like where you have Peter calling uh, Sable, Sable, but between him and Silver Sable, you just have like the spider from his costume on it. And I think that was an interesting touch. Like, again, not a touch that needed to be there because you could just have two panels of people talking on the phone to each other. But putting that spider in the middle to, you know, reemphasize that this is, you know, Spider-Man business. Uh, but I thought it was an interesting and, you know, unusual touch, but I liked it. If it were Romita, he would have done the whole split face where half of the face is Spider-Man, half of the face is Peter Parker, so that we know that Peter's talking in his Spider-Man voice. Well, that's true. Yeah. Good point. I, I, I do like little touches like, you know, pay phones. You know, people, these <laughs> yeah. kids these days are like, what is that? You know, you don't really see them anymore. We, we fight this big monster of a guy at the end. And this is where I think Paladin uh, steps out of the, the story. He says he's got another contract. So it's like, yeah, he was just, he didn't really serve any real purpose through this story except nope. to get Spider-Man involved. Yeah, just a short-term team up, right? You yeah. know, like, and again, that's the pattern of these types of stories that they end up doing is that we see a lot of that. Again, going back to my previous comments about, you know, kind of the, at times, unnecessary sexualization of Mary Jane, yeah. uh, pages 299 and 300, uh, sorry, I guess just 299, you know, you don't need to see her wearing these clothes. Like, there's no, it doesn't add anything to the story <laughs> yeah. at all, but they're just kind of doing it anyway. Sex sells, what can I say? I guess. It's just so weird, right? Because, like, that's never that was never like spider like it was never really in spider-man like even black cat back in the day was kind of wholesome compared to what she would become later right like her costume was never that revealing they never made it look that way it was only you know later where you know, people like mcfarland would start to sex it up um so it's just interesting to see you know sexiness being injected into spider-man books you know it never goes away so like once they add it it never really leaves the spider books well i don't know i i, I think Modern day Mary Jane is definitely not like this. Well, not like this, but I mean, just in general, this feeling of sexiness kind of pervading Spider-Man, like Spider not that Spider-Man was a sexless book, but like comics were, you know, tamer, you know, right? In terms yeah. of how they portrayed the body and how they portrayed like the people were wearing, et cetera. And part of me kind of misses that kind of not wholesomeness, that's the wrong word, but like it was just not about that. It was about it was about the superhero stuff and not about you kind of making everyone look like a sex object. 
Well, this is 1989, and so comics were maturing during these these years, and that's definitely evident in these issues, for sure. For sure. I mean, even the fact that you have Mary Jane doing a Jane Fonda workout, like, again, very of the moment, like, that's what people would have been seeing, and, you know, her dress like that is what Jane Fonda was wearing in those workout videos that were very famous. So, yep. I mean, again, yeah, you're right. It, it really it really does live in the time period. It's not something that feels timeless. It feels very 1989. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Let's go on to the next one, issue 322. Uh, it's interesting. Of all the covers that I remember from Assassination Nation, uh, this is probably the one I don't remember the most because yeah. it didn't have Sabretooth or Captain America no. or like other characters. It was just Spider-Man, you know, beating up, uh, was, what is it, the uh, the ultimatum thugs. I, so I had some questions for you. So obviously this is much more of a, you know, straight on Spider-Man and Silver Sable team up um, as they go to Simcaria. I, I do think it feels a lot more straightforward as an issue it feels like it's trying to juggle less because it's more kind of straightforward we're here in Simcaria. we're trying to you know prevent an assassination go whereas the other ones was more like trying to start building a mystery and try to get somewhere whereas now it feels like we're where we're, 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 we're trying to be does that make sense yeah it does make sense and i think that a lot of there had to be a lot of exposition in this issue because there's a big plot twist at the end of this issue where we find out here's a spoiler that the king was not actually the real target. Mm-hmm. And the assassin shows up to kill the prime minister's fiance. And that right. that throws everything into question. Nobody knows what it is the what the actual purpose of this is. So we had to find out more about the power struggles between the mm-hmm. king and the prime minister and and all this kind of stuff first, which takes up a sizable amount of this issue. True. This, this issue does leave with obviously a little bit of a, a, a cliffhanger um, and a little bit more blood than we're used to seeing in 89, you know, comics from 89 in terms of one of these characters getting, you know, pretty brutally killed. Uh, it's interesting, right? Because the silhouette of the character, that's not the silhouette I would remember from being Sabretooth. Again, there's a very different version of Sabretooth back in this day. Right. Yeah. Like if you look at it, you'd almost think it was Feral or like, you know, one of those characters, but it just, it doesn't, it doesn't look like Sabretooth. And I wonder if that's just to keep us guessing. Like it's not, we don't actually see anything. So like it could have been Wolverine for all we know. Yeah. I, I do think McFarland is a great, I'm sorry, this isn't McFarland. This is someone else, isn't it? Or is this still McFarland? McFarland this is McFarland. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Um, but he's not inking himself here, right? So well, he is still. Well, I was going to ask about that because I think that there's a different inkers. If you look at page 330 mm-hmm. and 331, that spread right there. It's, it definitely doesn't look like Todd McFarlane inking himself. Look at Silver Sable's face at the bottom of page oh, 330. Yeah. It's very it's very loose. It doesn't look the same. It's possible that it was him, but he was just rushing. I, I mean, don't think it possible. was him at all. I think that he definitely did the layouts because it's definitely his his, his style there, but yeah. it's not his style of shading. It doesn't get to the same intricate level of detail and stuff. And that's no. it's not it's not that he was rushing. I think it's a completely different inker. And you can see it again on page three thirty six. Six. Do, you, do you think it's only like a, a few of those kind of selected pages then? Because you're right. Yeah, those pages do look different. And then if you look at the pages where both before and after, it does look classic McFarlane. So I guess, yeah, maybe something happened with those two pages. Maybe he had to redraw something. I think that he just ran up on a deadline and couldn't do it himself because, you know, these are bi-weekly issues. I think you just need an assistant. True. It does feel like an interesting artifact at the time because I feel like Ultimatum really disappeared as being any kind of a force in the Marvel Universe. But, you know, there was still somebody back here at this point. So if you had been reading comics at the time, Ultimatum would not have been a surprise to see um, in terms of, you know, a villainous group utilized uh, that could be relatively faceless. 
Um, I do love on page 327 the shot of Spider-Man. I dressed up, but with the Spider-Man mask on and the and the gloves. Like yeah. there's just something very fun and whimsical about that. It's a very serious situation that's going on in the story, but it's just something about some of the levity and situations like that, which I do appreciate. And I don't think there's any reason for it, right? Because almost immediately, like, you know, he takes off and then just ditches the clothes later. Like, so it was just one of those fun things. So when I was reading this the first time, we get to page 323 and we see kind of the leader of the ultimatum. His name is Major mm -hmm. Wheel. Mm -hmm. And it just looks like Paladin except dressed in white. 100%. You're right. It does. <laughs> it's like, is this Paladin? Is that why he left? Because because he's actually the assassin and now he's here and like I wasn't I wasn't sure if they were trying to go for that or not, but obviously they That sounds like a better comic, Curtis. You should write comics. Like that's oh, okay. better. <laughs> Yeah, just so strange. Yeah, bizarre. I mean, what do you, I mean, in terms of like kind of the violence level and, and what happens with Sabretooth, like, do you like that? Or do you, do you think it felt almost out of place? Like that level of, of you know, that's the slash, the blood splattering everywhere. Like, did it feel a little much for you? Well, in terms of the context of Spider-Man, no, because we've been getting a little bit of that with the Venom stories. I think that once we know that it's Sabretooth in the next issue, that makes a lot more sense as well. It does seem out of place because we don't know it's Sabretooth, but we can tell it's a very feral character that is coming to assassinate this guy. So uh, sure. I, this is another example of just the maturing of the comics in the 90s, in, throughout the early 90s. Sure. Yep. Uh, the colorist in this issue is Don T. Ask. Don't ask. <laughs> oh, so wow. I think, That's funny. I think that there are multiple colorists on here that just kind of had to work uh, on tight deadlines. Mm, that's funny. Yeah. I, I hadn't realized that. Okay, the next issue is issue 323. It's called Assault Rivals. Another pun. Mm -hmm. I love I, David Michelini is great with these puns. Yeah. In this one, Captain America shows up. He's right on the cover there. And this is the cover to our epic collection as well. But he's, mm -hmm. he's, he shows up uh, and assures Sumkaria that America is not behind the attacks. So that, I don't know if that holds any weight, but, you know, when Captain America speaks, people listen. The other big name in this issue, big name, I shouldn't say that. He's kind of not a big name, but Solo shows up in this <laughs> issue. And is this, this is Solo, this is not Solo's first appearance, right? I cannot remember for the life of me if we've met him before, but I think characters act like they've seen him before. Yeah, I think he'd been around already. I'm trying to remember where, but he first appeared in Web of Spider-Man 19. So that would have been back in 1986. So he's been around already. Okay. I, I don't think that he's been in any of the amazing Spider-Man epics because we've covered the few volumes before this and I don't think we've encountered him. Uh, but yeah, he shows up and he doesn't really have any real reason to be there. He just kind of shows up. We'll see how he what kind of purpose he he plays in this whole story later on now i have a few general questions but like so i, I did feel like this was an issue where some of the action felt like it started to slow down because we're starting to kind of get bogged down on some of the you know more intricate elements of the plot that they're trying to put out yeah. um did you did you like the use of solo instead of just getting paladin back did we need another one of these guys yeah i think probably they should have just kept him yeah exactly because they're pretty much the same character they should have just <laughs> kept paladin uh, and then that would have been totally fine. I wouldn't have had any problem with that. But I mean, this is the part of the the whole annual thing that you were talking about is they got to rotate through their guest stars and stuff. So Solo's going to be here for a couple of issues and then he'll go away. It's, it is funny because it was, we, I think either one of us had mentioned before, but it's not like these guys were like, you know, big guys to be promoting. Like they weren't about to have books, you know, like it's just, it's just an odd choice. Whereas at least with like Round Robin that came later, 
you could tell that some of those characters had other books. They're trying to kind of promote those things. Whereas this one just feels like here's a random mercenary characters we've been using the last few years. Let's bring them all in. It is interesting to see how many of these mercenary characters popped up since the Punisher came on the scene because Punisher made such a big splash. And as we see, like I said, the maturing of comics in 1980s uh, through the 90s, it's like, yeah, Paladin and Solo and and Silver Sable are all in that stable of of mercenary characters. Deadpool is another one that uh, that seem to pop up all of a sudden, all to, all at the same time. Okay, so Captain America's in this issue, and I think like he's just kind of along for the ride. Yeah, he doesn't feel like he has any agency at all. Like, no, nope. he just kind of gets pa- literally parachuted into the story. Like he actually shows up with the parachute. Um, so that's <laughs> definitely what it feels like. Like he just kind of shows up. He doesn't really make a mark or do much, and then he's gone. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he does he does come back a little bit later and serves a, a little bit of a purpose. But in this one, yeah, it's just to sell comics. They just stick them on the front of the book. But yeah, he, if he wasn't in this story at all, there it wouldn't change anything to do with the plot. They would still come to the same conclusions they came to, and things would still still progress. I, I can't remember, but I I mean, is it possible also that Michelini, knowing that, I, I mean, this is near when McFarlane left the book and maybe he already knew it was coming. So do you think he kind of asked McFarlane, like, hey, what do you want to draw before you leave? Like, do you think that's part of it? Like, and he was like, well, I want to draw Captain America. I'm like, all right, let's throw in Captain America. Like, I'm not saying he, you know, didn't come up with the plot first, but is it possible that maybe part of it was kind of talking to Todd and being like, what do you want to draw before you leave? Like, or maybe that was later. That could very well be. Ah, uh, that's a good question. I don't know. Like, I can't remember, and I know I've spoken with McLean in the past, but I can't recall. But it did make me think, like, maybe that was part of it here. Because otherwise, yeah, like, it's a random assortment of characters, unless McFarlane was like, you know, I'd like to try drawing some of these guys. The other possibility is that editorials like I need you to stick in some some guest stars in here that will uh, draw people's attention to the book. Uh, for so, for instance, on pay on the cover of Amazing Spider-Man three twenty four, we see Sabretooth prominently there, spoiling the big reveal of who the assassin is. That's true. I think that's a terrible. It was a terrible choice. They should have told us that it was Sabretooth at the end of the previous issue if they wanted to put him on the cover. Yes. Yeah, that's, you know, you're not wrong. That, uh, that's poor marketing. Yeah. Or I guess smart marketing in some ways, but like poor story management. So in this, this is the issue that's drawn by Eric Larson, and he's really mimicking Todd McFarlane, like a, like a oh, lot. For sure. Which, which I think is a good thing, right? Because I was, I was just going to say, like, that makes him a team, a team player, right? Like, he knows he's coming on in the middle. He's taking over for someone who's a superstar. So he's not going to try and do his own thing. He's going to try and, you know, match the overall visual tone that the prior artists had done. I thought that's a brilliant choice because a lot of artists would just try to do, try to do their own thing, especially, you know, who knows when you're going to get another issue of Amazing Spider-Man. Um, but, you know, he comes in and he does a, does a good role at trying to, you know, keep visual consistency through the storyline yep. uh, from another artist, which I think is not easy to do sometimes. And him and, Todd are not that similar, um, but uh, he does a pretty good job of doing it. Yep, I think so. And I think a lot of it also is the work of Al Gordon, who is trying to imic- uh, mimic the inking style as well. So the, between the two of them, uh, yeah, they do, a, they do a fine job. And if you were not paying attention, I think that you wouldn't even notice that it's a different artist. Interesting. Yeah, I think you're, I think you're not wrong. If you go to page 369... And you look at Peter's face with the huge eyes. That's Todd McFarland right there. It's not. That's not how Eric Larson draws faces. Uh, three sixty nine. The the last shot of him. I, I don't know. He did, but that looks like 
what Larson usually does for Peter. Yeah, you think so? I, I think that... I think so. I mean, maybe they both have... If you look guys. at some of the stuff he does... Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I guess I know what you... I, I think I, I get what you're getting at, but I don't know. I think a lot of times McFarlane... Sorry, Larson does make Peter look like that. In the MJ, again, feels very Larson. Yeah, yeah. I, oh, certainly, Larson does come out uh, for sure. Um, but yeah, I think that it's a nice blend. It's a nice blend in the middle there. In this issue, Spider-Man heads back to New York. Now that the, the crime has, has been done, he doesn't have any reason to really be there in Simcari anymore. So he goes back to New York. He teams up with Solo to hunt down the ultimatum leader because uh, he's, cause Sabretooth is still on the loose. This is where we find out that Sabretooth bad guy. But they track him all the way to Mexico. And so Captain America and, and Silver Sable go to Mexico to go after Sabretooth. So it's kind of a weird division right here. Like, why is Captain America so involved in this case? Um, I mean, I know mm-hmm. he's lending his support, but it seems to be n- n- not his real concern, like not something that he should be so concerned about. But anyway, he's, he's yeah. lending a hand because he's Captain America. For sure. But like, why can't Spider-Man fill that role? Yeah, uh, that's a really good question. I don't know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess they just want to be able to touch Peter back to his family life. Uh, touch back, touch base with Mary Jane and with Aunt May because we haven't seen them for a couple of issues. But and that's what he does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he really should have gone after your uh, Sabretooth. Absolutely. What do you think of the use of Sabretooth overall? Like, it's it's interesting because like used here, but like, we never, but he's not used a lot and he's not used well. So it's like, why even bother using him? I know, right? He's in like two pages. <laughs> Not not too painful. And it doesn't even feel like that, but like he doesn't really feel like Sabretooth. And I feel like at this point, like, you know, you had had him in Mutant Massacre, he'd been in Inferno, like he'd been around as a marauder. So like this felt more akin to maybe, you know, the original version of the character back when he was showing up in Iron Fist before he was an X-Men character. But like this didn't feel like the character like and like how did he get away from the Marauders? Like it just felt like very weird. Um and again, the musculature on him on him made him feel a little bit smaller and not as hulking as he became later. Uh it just felt very off model for Sabretooth and yeah, it just didn't feel like him. If he if he had been almost any other character, I would have bought it. Like it just there's nothing here that felt distinctively Sabretooth. Like this is Sabretooth. It just felt like here is a a gun for hire who's a little animalistic. That could be anyone. We're also given no real reason why he would agree to be a part of this plot anyway. Like he has got no motivation. We don't find out if yeah. he's being paid the big bucks. I mean, he's being hired, so we assume he's getting paid. But is that really also something that Sabretooth does? No, I don't think so. Uh, no, like, it, yeah, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Um, I do like, <laughs> it's such a weird and kind of silly catchphrase, but uh, Solo's big, uh, while I live, terror dies. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like, and he just keeps saying it. And I'm just like, all right, we're just going to keep sticking to the bit. Yeah, for sure. It, 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 I do feel like some of the... Um, you know, the thrust of the story starts to slow down a little bit because, you know, it starts out a lot more exciting and it just kind of starts to lose, lose itself. Yeah, it's all going to come to a head in the next issue. But yeah, I mean, Spider-Man and Solo take out the uh, the ultimatum. So, I mean, there is a purpose for the role, but the fact that they made such a big deal about the mystery assassin mm. and then Spider-Man doesn't get to face the mystery assassin is just such a weird decision. For sure. Now, it's interesting because, again, this is, you know, very of the time that, you know, they had recently kind of brought back Red Skull as being a very kind of different version of the, not different version of the character, but much more physically imposing than he had been in the past. Um, we got to see, you know, Red Skull. And so that the the version I always think of is basically this version where 
you know, he's got that long, um, uh, what is it? Like cigarette cigarette holder. holder. Yeah. He's like wearing the suit. He only exists for a relatively short period. And yet that's the Red Skull I think of. He's the one who was on like the trading cards at the time. He's the one who's, you know, in this issue and some others. So that's always the one I think of, but he's that he really did not last long in that uh, mode. That's true. I think of him this way too. Every time I see him in a green jumpsuit, I'm like, is that's not Red Skull? Because to me, it is this Acts of Vengeance era Red Skull in the suit. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. I agree. And I think it is because of the trading cards. Because those images are ingrained in my head because those were so influential in my comic upbringing. Absolutely. Um, I do think that so that, that this last issue um, so that we're talking about here, or at least last of the Amazing Spider-Man proper issues, uh, 325, um, it did feel like McFarlane really got to take advantage of, I guess, the two weeks off. Yeah, his art felt right back up to like the, the strong standard of the beginning. Um, some really solid penciling and inking. Uh, some of the details really really nice. I did like the use of like on page three eighty eight and three eighty nine, having some of the blacks instead of just having standard white space. Um, when when Peter and Mary Jane are having their kind of heart to heart with each other, um, I thought it did a lot for the mood and made it feel a little bit more I don't know more intimate as opposed to just the standard wet white background. Yeah, I like that too. I mean, they're in an attic, so it's supposed to be darker, but it did make it feel more intimate, like they are having, when they were having a heart-to-heart conversation, and uh, very, very effective. I agree. I like that. I do. <laughs> very make a line. Suitable cuddling ensues. <laughs> like, haven't you ever been with your wife, and you're like, I hope suitable cuddling ensues? Like, what? what is, what kind of narration is that? But it's very... I don't know. It's not quite purple pro. It's close, but it's it's just funny enough that I'm like, I'll, I'll give it a pass. Well, it's only subtle because she's not wearing anything terribly provocative. Otherwise, it would that's be more than just subtle. subtle right? Only. Like, yeah. she's really, yeah, that's actually one of the few times where she's not wearing something ridiculous. <laughs> okay, so this is the big finale. We have a broken relationship between Simcaria and America. And mm-hmm. uh, so Simcaria is going to declare war on America. They're going to send an army. And we find out that Red Skull is behind it all. He's orchestrated everything that so that he could do crime in America unnoticed. That's his big plot. Like, let's make a big right? war between two countries so that I can, like, push my drugs or whatever and no one will pay attention to me. Oh. I like that he does offer Spider-Man a million dollars. Yes. Yeah. It's better than Silver Sable. Yeah. This type of stuff does feel very 80s because the idea of, like, really corruption really being top of mind. Got movies like Wall Street. It's all about greed. Um, so, I mean, even Spider-Man only really got involved because he was offered a thousand dollars a day. Like it, it's interesting to see how much it plays on that idea of, of fast money of if money can buy your morals. Like, again, that would have been very top of mind in this kind of mid to late eighties period where that's what popular culture was really churning out yeah. was this kind of, uh, this discussion of, of, of wealth really corrupting people. Okay, so they did the same thing in this issue as they did with the Sabretooth issue is they put Red Skull right on the cover, spoiling the big reveal that he's the sure. one behind it. I don't, they did it twice. I'm like, yeah. come on, <laughs> save some mystery. But I mean, you got to put the guy on the cover to sell the book. It would have been a better, as you said before, it would have been a much better last page reveal for both Sabretooth and for Red Skull because yep. that's how you do reveals. That's how you do cliffhangers, right? You're like, bum, bum, bum. Totally, like, yep. But they didn't take advantage of any of those opportunities in any of these issues. Yeah, yeah, they, they sure didn't. But you're right, because that, that's a great way of, of doing it. And even when the when the storyline ends, it feels like it just kind of ends. <laughs> like, there's not a big wrap-up. It's just kind of, uh, well, I guess that's it. It's over now. Red Skull escaped. Oh, well. Yeah. So it is not that great of a satisfying ending. 
Um, I did have fun reading these, though. And if the thing about these issues, and I think you described it to me earlier as uh, it's like eating a chocolate bar, right? Mm. It's all just the the flashy flavor, but no actual uh, nutrients. And that's kind of what it is. It's like it's fun to read. It's fun to watch the guest stars duke it out with the big bad guys and whatever. But if you sit back and think of it, it's like, yeah, what? Did that plot actually really make sense? Uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. It, it it's fun. It goes by quickly. It's got some really really nice art. Again, it, it is showing that you know Spider Man is changing for the 80s or the late 80s, early 90s. It's definitely changing in tone. It doesn't feel like your your dad Spider Man anymore. If you're reading this at the time, it's not going to feel like you know the John Romita Junior. Sorry, John Romita Senior. Or you know classic Ross Andrews Spider Man anymore, right? Like it's feeling more modern, more risky, more more edgy. You're getting more heroes. You're getting these you know these other characters like like solo who would have felt very of the time you got characters like paladin like they're definitely leaning into you know telling a more in their eyes at the time very modern late 80s spider-man story and it does achieve that um it's just weird because you know it, it is part of this sea change that's starting to happen looking back on it you can see some of the growing pains because you're seeing spider-man kind of stumble out of the this extended kind of bronze age period which was relatively benign and now it's you know it's a darker darker grittier time which will only get worse not by quality standpoint but you know if you think about where spider-man goes mentally as a character in like the mid-90s pretty dark stuff yeah. and it all kind of starts here where they start letting the characters go in a more adult direction right yeah very true like i mean if you think about it back in the day what were villains after they were left for money and or like you know revenge but it was kind of vague but this is like assassins people are gonna die people are gonna get <laughs> murdered you know yeah, like uh, it's just very different. It's it's, it's so like different. Looking yeah. at the difference, it's like looking at the difference of like you know Snow White and Seven Dwarfs versus like Tarzan. Like they're both Disney movies, but one of them like starts with characters dying in a much more violent way. In fact, I'll tell you a quick funny story is that I showed Tarzan to my son maybe less than a year ago for the first time and I love Tarzan I think it's a great film yeah I love the animation in it especially because it made me feel like this is this, they could do this with Spider-Man like you know totally he, yes they, he, he's swinging around um but I remember I showed it to him and he's like man there's like a lot of death I'm like there is a lot of death I kind of forgot that there's like a baby gorilla gets murdered at the beginning you know adults get murdered in the, in the beginning of the movie so uh, maybe a week or two later I'm playing 20 questions with my son and I'm like okay I got an animated movie for you go and he's like is it animated i'm like yep he's like is there a villain i'm like yep like, is there murder and i'm like yep he's like is it tarzan i'm like yes but like those are the questions you use to get to tarzan is there murder what have I you done to your child away. adam <laughs> i don't know but like that's how he thinks of tarzan because there's this death at the beginning of the movie so instead of just being you know animal death he's thinking of it as murder tarzan has one of the more brutal deaths in a disney cartoon as well when at the very end when clayton falls and is oh, yeah. strangled by the vines and you see his shadow swinging there oh man <laughs> it's pretty brutal oh yeah you're right now there there's a lot of death and destruction and in my son's eyes murder <laughs> that's so funny okay and now that we've had that conversation about Tarzan, let's move on to the last thing we're going to talk about here. This is uh, Spider-Man, Amazing Spider-Man Parallel Lives, the graphic novel also by Jerry Conway uh, with artwork from Alex Saviuk and inks by Andy Mashinsky. Mm -hmm. 
So I, I have to be honest. I know about this story. I don't think I'd ever actually read it until we, we sat down for this episode. Right. Like I've always, I've always heard of it. I know what it adds to the mythos, but I never actually read it for myself. And honestly, I really enjoyed it, but it did make me wonder what people would have felt like at the time, because this is on the shelves at the same time as assassination nation. And you could not have a more different interpretation of Spider-Man. It's very true. And I think the, the part of that is because we are traveling back to the Ditko and Romita era. And Spider-Man's still a kid. Things were, you know, not as intense for them in their lives, even though he's going through mutation and everything with being Spider-Man. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it does deal with different things. It doesn't deal with nations at war with each other. It doesn't deal with assassins and kings and prime ministers. It deals with family life. It deals with abuse at home. And mm -hmm. it, it deals with coming to grips with who you are and uh, and it's very much more of a down-to-earth story. Oh, for sure. In fact, it's interesting that I found the parts I didn't like as much about this is when they kind of shoehorned in the more quote-unquote modern action with like Doc Ock. I was right. like, I yeah. was much more invested just seeing the retelling of these characters' lives and again, like how they're kind of parallel to each other and you know how they kind of reflect each other, which is so interesting. And you know, it's building off of Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends really adding a lot to the character of Mary Jane when they brought her back to the book. Um, obviously, then Jim Shooter and you know decided to get the characters married. So they had to kind of do something. And obviously it adds a huge element to the mythos and actually, you know, quantum, you know, specifically showing us when MJ found out that Peter was Spider-Man. And this is controversial at the time. Yeah. It, it still kind of is. But I, I think as, as time goes on, everyone kind of kind of forgets how she knew and just kind of assumes that, you know, she knew. Um, but like it gives us very specific moment. And it's it's Conway does his best to give a believable reason why she never said anything, why she never acted like she knew anything, and really to try and layer enough into the character to make the retcon that DeFalco introduced just in general to her life, uh, and trying to have it make sense for the character that we had seen in the sixties and seventies. Um, it's probably heavy lifting that no one really needed to do. Really, I mean, like you don't have to go back and do this type of you know deep dive to to make a retcon make sense. Um, or to flesh it out a bit more. But I appreciated that they made an effort to kind of put everything together. And this definitely felt like Conway putting together, you know, trying to figure out how all these pieces now fit together and how to make all the revelations make sense with the the MJ that we saw back when she was first introduced. And I think he does a really good job and doesn't get enough credit for really having to do a lot of heavy lifting here. And Saviak is so good here. Um, you know, he doesn't feel as saviak as he usually does, if that's not even a real term, because I just butchered his name. But like, <laughs> but he he has a certain style and he instead leans more into obviously the Dicko and Ramita stuff, because that's what you have to do in something which plums this period. Yep. And I thought he did a great job and the characters look again, after just reading assassination nation and the characters at times, like the modeling had started to change. And I, I like that classic Peter Parker look and that's what we got here. And we got a classic MJ. And so there's just something very comfortable about reading a book like this because yep. everyone feels very classic. Like this is default Spider-Man settings. And there's something very nice about that after just reading something that really challenges everything about how, how you were used to Spider-Man looking um, in terms of his musculature, what he looks like in the costume, what Peter looks like, what MJ looks like. So here we have something much more classic. And so especially as a way of the ending this, this epic collection, very comfortable, very nice, easy way to end the book. Comfortable is the, is the word I would use too. That's exactly it. And I think it's an important distinction because when we're dealing with 
the subject matter of an abusive father. I think if Todd McFarlane were to be the artist, it would add an element of cheesiness to to the subject matter that maybe we wouldn't take as seriously. I actually think he would add an element of of actual violence. Like it would almost be uncomfortable. That might like, be it too. That could be. Like, like there's a lot of perceptions here. And like, for the most part, we see it more of being like yelling and abusive as opposed to like hitting. Right. And right. like, yeah. And, 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 and in the eyes of a child, what that would look like. But I feel like if you have, this is something different about having Savia draw a character yelling at someone versus McFarlane having a character yelling at each other would feel seismically different and would make it feel a lot more, you know, potentially violent and threatening. And so, yeah, I think it, it's such a delicate thing to do because you don't want to lean too heavy. You don't want to make it a caricature, but you are trying to add you know depth to this character who has kind of a tragic backstory and you have to be careful because you know it could be triggering for people who actually are going through abuse mm -hmm. um or who have suffered these types of things or know people in these situations so it's very difficult to do something like that in a tasteful manner but i thought Savik's art was really well done because it, it just felt like it, it towed the line just perfectly it never felt too much but it also felt like it still was showing that there was something going on now when mary jane appeared in the old Ramita issues um, she was used primarily as a counterpoint to Gwen Stacy because Gwen Stacy was more of the, you know, girl next door type. And mm -hmm. uh, and MJ was the party girl. She was always going out there, glamorous life and whatever, that kind of thing, like dating the football star, you know, that kind of personality. And there wasn't really any more depth to her character than that. Not until mm. Gwen Stacy died and they gave her more of a personality. Not just they gave her more personality, Conway himself. Right? Well, yeah. so that's an important distinction, right? Because it's not just any writer who did it. It was Conway. And right. now who's writing this? It's Conway again. So that is something yeah, important there. Yep, absolutely. Thanks for pointing that out. And so now to get this backstory where we find out that her whole party girl personality is a mask to hide the stuff that's going on at home, to hide her own insecurities and stuff. It just gives her a much more rich character. And I love that the way that this story is unfolded where Peter helps draw out more of her confidence and through their relationship. And, and, uh, and then it brings it to a point where like, at the very end of this book, when they've been married for just a few, few, few weeks or something like that, and Doctor Octopus attacks, and Spider Man's mm -hmm. like, I, I can't do this anymore because I'll, I'm just going to put you in danger, and I don't want you to die like Uncle Ben dies. But now Mary Jane is at the point where she has the confidence to not run away from the situation, and in front, in fact, confront Peter, saying, "No, this is." your responsibility you got to do this you know mm -hmm. and i love the little line that she has at the end where she says you don't know if uncle ben wouldn't have died if you stopped that that robber he might have died in some other way mm -hmm. he'd still be in the same spot uh, so don't like that's not your responsibility your responsibility is something else and i think that it's it's great so we haven't really talked about the overall way that the story is being told a lot of it is uh, it's called Parallel Lives because we're talking about Peter Parker becoming Spider-Man and his trajectory through college and that kind of thing. And then at the same time, Mary Jane, who's living across the street. Uh, and well, her... periodically, right? Because she's in Pittsburgh and then right. she also... Well, with her aunt across aunt the street, aunt, yeah. when she visits, visits her aunt, yeah. And, and you know, sees Peter through the window and that kind of stuff. And and a lot of the pages are like the, the left side of the page is Spider-Man's story. And then the right side of the page is what's happening with Mary Jane at that same time. And and I like that in the, the parallel theme of telling their lives in parallel, but also the theme of them helping each other through their situations 
is is just fantastic. I think that this is the best part of this epic collection. It it's really really great. Such a good solid story for sure. I mean, and again, a lot of it's not necessarily like new because we had already seen most of the stuff elsewhere. But having it all concisely put in this manner, I thought was really strong. Yes. Because, I mean, obviously, we've seen a lot of this was already introduced uh, by Ron Friends and Tom DeFalco. But again, having it nicely concise. And there's just something to... It's interesting now, right? Because like you and I grew up in a period where MJ and Peter were already together, right? They yeah. were already endgame couple. Like, they were already married. Obviously, they're not married now. That's a whole other thing. But, you know, they were already married and they were just together. And it was books like this was Marvel trying to figure out a way... Because remember, the wedding was kind of rushed because the character had just been brought back into the book not that long earlier. Her and Peter were just friends. They weren't even dating. And then the edict comes down. We're going to get them to, to get married. So they have to figure out a way to quickly kind of push them back together and get them married. And having a book like this not long after is a nice way of saying, like, these characters are meant to be together. This is why. Yeah. This is yeah. how MJ changed. And if you haven't been following Amazing Spider-Man, but you've, you've heard that they're getting married, but you haven't followed that issue by Tom, Tom DeFogel and Run Friends, here's this, you know, nice kind of prestige, you know, one-shot graphic novel to kind of read to better understand. These are why these two characters are meant to be together. And you can't read this and not think, yeah, they're are meant to be together there's just something they understand each other's journeys in a way that other characters couldn't because they've had their different elements of trauma again it has the big reveal um that we now get to you know specifically see when she found out he's peter because uh, spider-man's peter parker because i don't think that was revealed by tom defaco but i can't remember for no. sure but I think no, the exact wasn't. moment was saved for this. So yep. again, this that was the big hook here is you get to see that moment. Um, but also you get to see that why these characters are meant to be together. Again, the only thing I think that doesn't always work here is the Doc Ock plot because it feels more kind of like a, like they need a perfunctory villain to be attacking for some reason. It doesn't feel like it adds anything. It doesn't feel like it even necessarily feels like Doc Ock of the period. It just feels like they needed a villain to somehow kind of pull things together in the quote unquote modern day. Um, which I don't think I needed it personally, but it's there. It's fine. But it did feel very, you know, like it was um, checking a box as opposed to needing to be there, whereas everything else feels so perfect. Well, Tom DeFalco always says you come for the fights, but you stay for the soap opera or you stay for the romance. Oh, yeah, and that's oh, for sure. Exactly what it is here. Like that Doc Ock fight really is the only real action we have here because all of the other action sequences that we see are just kind of the splash page images from battles in the past. So to get that new Doc Ock sequence was like, here's here's the money shot. But, mm -hmm. you know, people are really more interested in the ongoing saga of these two these two characters' personal lives. True. Yeah. I do have to say, and again, this is an artistic uh, showcase for Saviak, but he just did such a great job. Like, there's so many wonderful things here. Like even his his classic take on the first appearance of MJ on page 447 here. Oh, yeah. It's so really good. gorgeous. Like, yep. And again, what I like about it is, again, this idea of this wholesomeness, right? Like she looks very attractive without looking like what McFarlane look, makes her look like, right? Like there's just something very nice about the art like it just feels very clean uh the artwork is always deliberate but there's a very kind of nice you know it feels like it could take place at any time yeah. like it doesn't have to be in this from the 60s or 70s like it just feels very timeless i mean maybe peter wearing the suit feels very of the 60s but there's just something about it that feels very timeless and very natural the characters just look like real people um having these actual you know, real events because a lot of the stuff that happens here is just normal life it's you know spider-man stuff is obviously the bigger stuff but oh mj stuff is you know this is all everything that she goes through feels very believable like her life what she went through with her family with her father with her sister, with when her mother passes away, her sister wanted to like thinking that she's part of this unit and then her not wanting to be dragged into that. Like that feels very, and it's part of what makes this story work is that you believe this person, this person, and you understand why, what this, this party girl mask would actually 
come from. And it starts to reconcile this classic version of MJ of just being this carefree girl. And then they're like, okay, well, I can understand how this person would become that or want to be that and not want to be weighed down by life and just trying to move forward because of this kind of this backstory in her in, in her history. So it feels just very real. Um, and again, that's a testament to Tom DeFalco and also Jerry Conway to, again, expand on what DeFalco laid out and make you really believe it. Yeah, totally. I really liked it. Honestly, like, again, I hadn't really read it before. I, I knew so much about it, but I never really took the time to read it before. So I appreciate us having the opportunity to kind of go through this book just because it made me finally sit down and read Parallel Lives because it doesn't necessarily, quote unquote, add something you know that I didn't already know because, again, it's been out for like 30 years. But it was a really nice, interesting story, even though some of the parts with MJ were, you know, tragic and sad and, you know, hard to read, but like well-read or uh, sorry, well-told and well-written. Yep. I agree completely. Yep. And it's my favorite part. Like I said, it's my favorite part of this whole epic collection. I think it's the highlight and it's a great note to end on as well. For sure. It's funny, before we started recording, we we're like, oh, this might be an hour or so. And I, I, we, I went on way too long about the annual. So like, I think we're coming up on two hours soon. <laughs> I think it'll be about an hour and a half when I finish editing. So I think it'll be just fine. I think we'll be okay. But yeah, Excellent. we should wrap this up. This is our conversation. We finished this epic collection and uh, we'll be moving on to something else in the future. Adam, I don't know when the next time you'll be on the show is at this point, but we'll definitely have you back uh, to talk about more Spider-Man. In fact, now that we've completed this issue, volume 19 of this epic collection, we've covered Spider-Man from volumes mm -hmm. 17 all the way to volume 23 i think that can't be right really yeah <laughs> yeah we've done all Good of those God. so that means we can the next time we get together we can go on to the hero killers the volume called the oh hero that's killers. exciting volume 24 is invasion of the spider slayer and then it's maximum carnage after that so we can kind of go further into the 90s i mean i'm super excited about that stuff because like that to me is my era even though i wasn't necessarily reading a lot of the issues of amazing spider-man at that time but like make leave will always be artist of record when i think of spider-man yeah so being able to kind of dig into that stuff is very exciting and you know something i've been i've been waiting for for a long time um so i'm really you know pumped about that to be able to go through those issues yeah i hadn't realized that we had done so much amazing spider-man already but i guess you're right because we got up to round robin so i guess after that is hero killers which i mean it comes out next january january 2023 so you know that's not that long away from now I look forward to it. That'll be uh, that'll be a lot of fun. <laughs> Thanks, Adam, again for joining me today. And uh, um, yeah, you don't have a podcast to plug anymore, so <laughs> thank you. I'm actually found like just a, a normie without anything to plug. But at some point, you and I are working on uh, a book of interviews of, that we both worked on in the past. So at some point in the someday future, you know, look for those. Yes, yeah, yeah, definitely. We'll collect some of our favorite interviews of the people we've talked to and uh, get that in your hands. That'll be fun. Absolutely. Well, Perfect. thanks so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to uh, to join and to have a reason to podcast again. And uh, as I said, I really appreciated being able to being given a reason to read Parallel Lives because I really enjoyed it. Great. And thanks to all you listeners for tuning in and we'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>